This is a word fitly spoken. By words about reading the scripture, about preaching the scripture, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at a word fitly spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. Today we're going to be talking about unity in the church. Zelwyn, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Just got back from the district convention or conference, I guess, and am looking forward to getting into this topic. Very nice. How's the weather out on the prairie? Uh, it was snowing when I left for the conference, so you 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 make the connection. Right. Well, <laughs> it is fall in North Dakota, so... And October, so yes, it is the beginning of winter. Right. <laughs> Hope you enjoy your two seasons. Yes, yes. Winter basically comprises about eight months of the year out here, so... So how was the pastor's conference? What was the what was the theme? The the primary theme was talking about justification and it was a little shorter conference than than usual. Just kind of trying to see how things are going and I enjoyed several of the presentations there and it was al- it's always nice to be able to see fellow pastors since I am relatively isolated in the district from the rest of of the congregations. So yeah, I just returned from uh our pastoral conference, our fall conference in scenic West Des Moines, Iowa. Our uh, topic was conflict resolution within the church, which can be something of a loaded term, but it was actually really quite good, biblically grounded. It was it was a very profitable presentation overall. So good, so worth the trip, I think. <laughs> you know me; I don't like to leave the compound if I can if I can avoid it. If you can help it, yeah, not too far, I hope. Oh, just a just a little a couple hours, not too bad. Not too oh, that's bad. not bad. Yeah, that's a that's just a, a hop, skip, and a jump over your way, right? <laughs> yeah, the average the average trip. So, <laughs> so we're going to talk about unity. Now, that's something that uh, is very popular. It's a very popular word, unity, and often we find unity just for the sake of unity. That's what people mean today. So. You get all these denominations coming together in in this ecumenism, you know, this ecumenical movement, and pretending that there is unity when there actually isn't. Something of a of a false unity. They're together just to say, "Hey, we're together." But what we want to focus on is true biblical unity, which is a unity of confession. That is, everybody confessing the same faith, the same doctrines, and the same Lord. You know, there is a degree of unity that we can have, and we'll talk about that a little bit with all believers throughout the world. But as Christians, we can't have any semblance of spiritual unity, for example, with the Mohammedan, right, or the Buddhist. Would you agree with that, Zelwyn? Yeah, I mean, obviously you would take the the far-out examples and say, well, these people, they obviously believe nothing of what we believe. You know, like in the case of Islam, they don't even worship the same God. I mean, there are some who try to say that it's the case, but no, I mean, we recognize that there are two completely different religions. But I think what, what you're getting at, and I think it's a good point, is we're sometimes tempted to say, okay, well, we're all on the same team as Christians because we're all Christians and therefore we are unified in some vague way, maybe just by the name only. We can call each other Christians. But that is actually a quite dangerous thing because it ends up papering over the very real differences that sadly exist among us. Right, right. So we're talking about unity then as a church or as the church. So 
First things first, what is the church? <laughs> the, the, the basic definitions, yeah. The church is the assembly of believers that God has called to himself and keeps in the, the true faith. And I suppose we have to make uh, several distinctions here about, you know, how do we determine what is the church? Like, how do, how do we find this church, Willie? Sure. As far as a visible church, you know, as we would confess in the Augsburg Confession, the church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. It actually goes on and speaks to you. Into the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree concerning the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. So, and then, you know, it speaks a, a bit about human traditions, rites, and ceremonies. Now, that's very interesting. So that sounds really simple. The doctrine of the gospel and the administrations of the sacraments. So uh, someone would say, well, the Augsburg Confession, you know, is is really opens a pretty wide gate here. <laughs> but the reality of it is, is that, no, this is actually a very, very dense topic. The, we're talking about the gospel that is you know, how man is saved, what is the good news of salvation, and then we're talking about the way in which we receive that salvation. So these are two very significant things, and churches, most of their splits have to do with these two subjects. Right. Yeah, if if you really want to ask the question, and this is sometimes what I think we fail to do, especially when we want to just say that we're all in this together, the, the Christian who says that Jesus saves them because they choose to be saved. And the Christian who says that Jesus saves them in spite of their choice, you know, Christ is the one who comes and saves us, are actually professing two very different things. There cannot be unity in any fundamental sense where you have such differing definitions of what the gospel is. Right. And then that just leads to differing definitions of the sacraments. And so now we're, we're, we're already at schism, you know. Right. So there is a visible church, and it's found where the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. That mm-hmm. is to say, according to the Lord's institution and according to the teachings of Scripture. Now, how we discern that, that's, that's the difficult discipline that we must endure as Christians. And this is, at Word Fitly, we're continually trying to point you back to the Scriptures. And it's for this reason so that you rightly know the person and work of Jesus Christ. You cannot know Christ apart from his word, and you can't expect to have unity apart from his word. And we'll dig into that, you know, towards the end of the broadcast, you know, practical roads for unity. But the Bible, God's revealed word, has to be front and center. Anytime there is error concerning the gospel, it's typically because someone has veered away from Scripture in some way, or has twisted Scripture in some way. Or has read it through some sort of bad lens, I guess I guess we could say. So we have to look for the church that is preaching the true gospel and that is administering the sacraments according to the Lord's institution. And maybe something worth pointing out here too, just to underline how important it is to return to the Bible in all of these things. I mean, we are Lutherans, and we uphold the confessions, and we say, and we give thanks for the confession that our forefathers made of the the gospel and of what it says. But to hold to the confessions, or to say that we hold to the confessions, is not necessarily proof that we are actually holding to what the Bible says. 
there's a difference between the outward profession of, you know, of some position and what is actually being taught and what is actually being proclaimed. And so the only way to truly know whether someone is preaching what God wants them to preach is to return to the scriptures. Would you agree with that? You're right, right. And and we always have to be conscious of that. We confess the Lutheran confessions. I need to get a thesaurus. We're going to keep this up. But we confess <laughs> the confessions because they're an accurate reflection of the teachings of Scripture. Right. Yes. Now, we, we sometimes use this because or insofar language as a way to show like an inter-Lutheran, you know, kind of discussion over the binding nature of, of the confessions. And that's a good discussion, and it's one that we have had here on the podcast and we'll have again. But because also implies, or doesn't imply, because, you know, explicitly says, because it is of the Scripture. And, and that's what we always need, need to remember. We're not interested in the confessions just for themselves or, or to get confessional boy points or to signal our orthodoxy. We hold firm to the confessions because they teach what the Scripture teaches. And that's a good and that's a fine thing. And it binds all of our ministers, all pastors of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, subscribe to the Book of Concord without reservation. Is that true, Zellin? Well, that's what they, they promised in their ordination right, yeah, that, vows. Yeah, that's, that's the vow they make. <laughs> and so what is that to say? Well, it's to say, yes, we're going to teach in accord with classical Lutheran doctrine, of course. But what do we mean by that? We're saying that we, as the Lutheran Church, are accurately teaching the truths contained in Scripture. And the minute we get away from that, when we just emphasize the confessions in a way that causes the Scriptures to lessen, then we've turned it on its head. And anybody right. can be guilty of that. And in, in, in any confessional denomination, you find that. And, I, and by that, by confessional in that context, I mean any denomination where the pastors are bound to a set of confessions. It can right. often devolve into just this debate concerning the wording of the confessions over and against the Scripture or, you know, in spite of, of the Scripture. So we are in no way reducing the importance of the confessions. We're simply reminding you that we hold firm to the confessions because they contain the truth of Scripture. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And, and and so we just always want to keep that in mind. It's just a it's just a check on ourselves. Just and and a lot of times when we're talking, we're we're talking about our own weaknesses and our own things that we fall into, as well. Because any any theologian runs the risk of falling into that. Any Christian runs the risk of falling into that. In our zeal for being right and in a godly sense, in our zeal for the truths of Scripture, you know, there's always that danger of of obscuring things unnecessarily. So, so there we go. The church, that's the visible church. Now, Zelwyn, is there such thing as an invisible church? I know it's a point of debate, but I still think that it is a helpful distinction because the visible church would be the church that we can see. And unfortunately, the church that we can see is often broken. It's often has, it's fighting. It's often, it doesn't seem like the church, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the invisible church, even if we don't like the language of invisible, it still at least is saying that there is an, a, the, the truth of the church that we confess, like in the creeds, for example, the, you know, the one holy Christian and apostolic church, that she exists despite her outward brokenness and that God knows those who belong to him. 
he is fully aware of who actually believes in him and, you know, which the 7,000 that have not yet bowed their knees to Baal. God knows who are his, and he's not going to forget that. And so the outward brokenness of the visible church doesn't change the fact that there is still God's elect. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned election, because that's where I really wanted to go with this. Election (laughs) affirms that idea of an invisible church. And you need that. You need to remember that there is that faithful remnant, because although it's wrong, to look for assurance in the outward things of the church will often lead to despair. Because we do recognize that the church is filled with wicked men. Now, the church is filled completely with sinners, of course, but that that becomes so much of a cop-out. The church actually oftentimes is is filled with and even ran by wicked men who do not have the Spirit within them. Wicked men whose souls, while they have been redeemed by Christ, let's just say that they don't have yet the faith to lay hold of that. And then that is the truth. We've seen that pattern throughout Scripture where scoundrels come and take power in the church. And what happens? Well, it destroys the witness of the church. The laity see that, and they begin to despair. Because when those who are called to be Christ's representatives, the pastors, within the church, as the, in the teaching office, when they are wicked, that causes people to doubt the authenticity of their message. Right. And, and again, this goes beyond just the simple, everybody's a sinner and everybody stumbles. That is true. But I'm talking about actual wolves in sheep's clothing that we're warned about. Yeah. Caiaphas and, would be an example. I mean, sure. he's yeah, occupying yeah. the high priesthood. Right. And yet has Jesus put to death. So, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent example. We don't even need to go to the popes. Uh, we can look <laughs> yeah, right there. Right to uh, the Bible. Right to the Bible. That's, that's absolutely <laughs> true. And then all of the Old Testament examples that we have, too, where this happens. And, and so... Again, all this speaks to the unity of the church, that the church does have a unity in spite of wicked men or poor leadership or wicked laity, too. We don't want to say that that doesn't somehow affect this. Right. But that kind of thing always threatens unity. And so why is unity important then? Why not just say, well, God will save his elect and I have faith. I'm among the elect. So I'll just I'll just not I'll not care so much about external unity or unity within an individual congregation or denomination. External unity is still important, if only because it's an acknowledgement that there is such a thing as truth. I think the, the greatest danger that we have in our world today is because we see ourselves as at war with the world, and especially at war in a, in a much stronger war than previous generations, perhaps, although this is not rooted to our own generation. We tend to think, well, we all got to stick together if we're going to weather this storm. But that's just not the case. I mean, that's that's not taking God, God's providence very seriously. I mean, God is going to take care of us no matter what, even in the worst of circumstances. I mean, the 7,000 who did not bow their knees to Baal were literally 7,000 left out of millions. I can't think of a much worse situation. Can you? <laughs> right. And, you know, this is the interesting thing. Sometimes division comes about by the sword. I mean, like a literal division. Right. And and our divisions today, at least in our context, are usually the result simply of character defects and that sort of thing, you know, or personal squabbles. But you have division by the sword through much of church history that comes about through persecution and great things, grave things, I should say. Yes. 
And but so so we should still seek after that external unity for the sake of confessing the truth and for the sake of being able to say, this is what the Bible actually says, and we're going to stick to it without compromise, without wavering, without waffling, and actually take a stand on something in an age that doesn't like to take a stand on anything. Our uh, forefathers in the faith through all generations certainly thought that unity was something that could be attained and maintained, although through great difficulty. So we don't want to be black pillars here and say, well, this is just the sinful fallen world we live in, so we can never expect unity of doctrine, confession, or practice. And I just don't think that that's that's the attitude we ought to take. Far and away, the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Mm -hmm. And unity within the one true faith is certainly a great thing that we should strive for, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to psalm post a little bit, the brothers dwelling in unity is not this idea of some happy, warm, fuzzy, we're all just, you know, getting along singing kumbaya or something. No, that's an actual godly unity, which consists in sharing the same faith, the same confession. And everything else would flow out of that. Unity within the church is achieved, yeah, through common confession, but it doesn't mean then that that's that you can't hang out with the guys at church, have a beer, and talk about movies or something, or sports <laughs> or whatever. You know, but but the true unity does grow from the shared faith. It doesn't mean that every time you get together it has to be a high mass or something like that. Right. Uh, or or anything of that nature. So <laughs> I mean, we can talk about things other than theology, Willie. Are you sure? Well, you know, sometimes, you know, it's permissible only on Ember Days and non-mandatory feasts, I think. You can talk about, <laughs> talk about other subjects. I'm sure it's written somewhere. We just got to consult the books. So, <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. And we're back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about unity in the Church of Christ. Now, we defined what the church is, the importance of unity. So let's take a look at some of the biblical foundations for unity. So Zell, where should we go first? You want to take a look at Ephesians here? Yeah, I think the probably the best one of the best places to go, although one could argue that the New Testament as a whole is a pretty good place to go. Ephesians chapter 4, 
is a is I think a, an excellent place to start. And I just want to read a, a few of these verses to emphasize this, starting at verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Yeah, and I, I think Paul's point here is quite on point to our topic because he's saying that, you know, because we are Christians, we are being urged in Christ to walk in the call in our calling in Christ. So to be a Christian is to walk in that, in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, in humility and gentleness and all of that sort of stuff. And Paul presupposes this unity. Right. And now it's a unity that is of the spirit. So obviously unity is a fruit of the spirit, but that fruit is cultivated by Christians. And unity, it's interesting. He'll say the calling to which you have been called, which that's the general calling to the Christian life, into faith in Christ, you know, that all Christians share. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, so all of those, patience, loving one another, and in that, eager to maintain this unity. I think it's interesting when you get into, like, Galatians and talking about the fruits of the Spirit versus the fruits of the flesh. That the works of the flesh, at least three of them, include rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. And yeah. so the the flesh naturally tends towards that kind of division, this kind of fracturing in the body. But it is a God-given fruit that brings about unity, that brings about that peace, the patience, the kindness, love, and all of this sort of things. So that we we should mention that unity is not achieved just because we agree on it, unity is something that God gives us. Right. Yeah, you can have a false unity. Islam has a false unity, a unity, you know, that comes, well, now we're back to the sword again, but you can sort of <laughs> jockey people into being lockstep united if you want to. Sure. You know, you can do that with force, but that's not the way Christian unity comes about. Now, we do want to be sure that, you know, we do need to enforce and, and, and ensure that pastors are actually teaching you know, in accordance. So there is authority within the church. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is, is that our peace comes from submission to Christ in love toward one another. And that whole submission, you know, trying to put aside the ego or the rivalries for the sake of the church. It's it just Christianity spreads in a much different way, and unity is achieved in a much different way than a, than a, than anything worldly, right? Except for Spain, it's, it's a little different, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so for the, the New World. But that's that's an that's an upcoming podcast. So. That's a whole different thing, yeah. <laughs> but I think I actually think it's interesting that you bring up authority there too, because you know we sometimes assume that unity is going to be just a. Like you said, we, we tend to associate it with just kind of getting along, the sort of warm, fuzzy. Right, yeah. We're all getting along together. Whereas actually in Ephesians, it's interesting that Paul goes on to say that because of this oneness which we have in God, the things which God gives to us include things like the apostles, the teachers, the the authority in the church as well. So authority right. and unity are not contrary to each other. Yeah, the authority is there to facilitate that unity. Exactly, yeah. Together... Those who teach and those who hear 
are bound together in the spirit so that the whole body is joined together. And this would be about verse 16. So that that unity that comes from the church is also a unity in all of her parts as well. Yeah. And, you know, unity necessarily implies one and oneness. So that's why we see like verse four, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, through all and in all. The uniqueness of the Christian faith is something to be protected and to be maintained. Zoan, is there salvation outside of Jesus Christ? (laughs) (laughs) Is this a serious question on a Christian podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Sir, this is a Christian server. Please watch your language. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. No, absolutely there is not any kind of salvation outside of Jesus. There is no other name given among men by which we will be saved. I mean, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, yeah, to be saved means to believe in Jesus. Right. And and so we all share that saving faith, that one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God, you know, one Savior, one baptism into his name, and really and truly one true church. And then there there comes some of the difficulties because we see schisms or schisms if you're one of those dudes. <laughs> almost literally from the beginning of the church, almost right after Pentecost. And we've been living with that since then. You know, part of it is our language. You know, we'll use church in a very generalized sense. We mean congregations, right? Right. So sometimes it sounds a little bit like we're saying there are more than one church, but but that's certainly not the case. You know, what comment do we have, or does the Bible inform us in any way? We have all of these different divisions. Is unity possible? And what would the Bible say? Do you think the Bible approves, and that's his way of saying, do you think God is pleased with the state of Christianity today? I don't, he's not surprised, obviously, but... No, I, I can't I can't imagine that we would say this is pleasing to anyone. And to be quite honest, you know, those who are in the faith should not be pleased by the division either. Division is not a cause for rejoicing. It never is. The fact that it exists is something that should cause us to mourn, just like Paul admonishes the Corinthians, you know, this is not something to be proud of. But the answer to it is to do what with like in First John, to, to test the spirits, to consider what it is that they are saying, and to actually compare what they, uh, the message that they are bringing with the unchanging, lasting, eternal word of God. That's the only way that we're going to have any kind of real unity in the church is when we stay grounded in the word. What should be our response then to all of these divisions? You know, one, obviously we should be praying daily for the unity of the church. Right. What are some other things we ought to do? You know, as a father, we're both fathers. Part Mm -hmm. of maintaining that unity is passing the faith on to our children. Right. You know, you see this a lot with married couples, especially, you know. Now, never mind couples of two different religions. That's forbidden by scripture. But the struggles that happen when husband and wife are of two different denominations. Right. Like disunity and disharmony does not bear good fruit most of the time. Right. Yeah. And so you see, you know, oftentimes you'll see the child who's a product of those mixed marriages. He doesn't do well. He'll end up being a, an agnostic or something. Or oftentimes one parent's religion overshadows the other. 
But really, cultivating unity is an individual thing, too. It sounds kind of odd to say because unity is such a corporate act, but we need to be intentional about unity. It's not a good idea to marry someone of a different religion or a different sure. denomination. It will just lead to, to conflicts. It's, it's similar to some of the reform denominations who end up having a lot of trouble, and I'm using it in the classical sense, where you can be a member in good standing of, of, a, of this church and not really believe what they believe. And yet, and that causes even more dissensions and more divisions and everything. Well, I, I find it interesting that Paul, for example, and very many of his letters, as he gets towards the end of the letter, will often address very specific situations within congregations. Yep. You know, I entreat, you know, these two women to agree with each other. And this this kind of personal division is actually symptomatic of a greater division as well, because I don't know how else to put it. I mean, like, take, for example, the, the, the man, the immoral man in 1 Corinthians. Right. His particular sin was actually causing the whole congregation to stumble. And they were tolerating it in their midst. And as a result, yeah, so personal division is actually going to fracture that corporate division as well. Well, you know, there's another good example from Corinthians with the issue of speaking in tongues. Right. You know, if I speak without an interpreter who is edified, it's the one speaking. So, you know, we're back to dissensions and rivalries again. Really, we could have just read the entire first epistle to the Corinthians and just called it a day. (laughs) episode. Or, you know, back to Galatians again. And it is interesting because you have all this at play. You have divisions of doctrine, which is certainly part and parcel with Galatians, but it's in Corinthians too. But then you have the divisions that come about from immorality. Right. And that's one that's just become totally foreign to us is, is any type of immorality in the church that it's like you can't address it. Now it should be addressed tactfully and oftentimes dealt with privately. But then you have this idea that, well, why would that matter? The church is a place for these broken people. This is where they need to be. Yeah, that part's true, Captain Strawman. But (laughs) they are a threat to the church. And we don't want those kinds of things going on for two reasons. For For three, the unity of the church, of course, the witness of the church, and for the soul of the person who is going astray. Paul's purpose in shaming the immoral man in Corinthians is not simply to get his goat. Right. As we say, or, you know, it's not to make him, you know, it's not to get the upper hand on him. Now to be clear, it actually is to make him feel bad. That's, that is true. He wants the man to experience a godly contrition that comes about from the discipline of the church. But why? So that he would repent and be brought back into the unity of the church. I think another real good example that I was thinking of actually comes from the Old Testament. Whenever you have like the the Levitical laws, and there's several of them where it talks about you shall put this out from your midst. Right. Because the idea is, is that through this immorality that has come into the congregation, the whole congregation has become guilty. Aachen would be a a good example of this, who, who steals that which was given to God. It was something that he was supposed to destroy, but he keeps it for himself. And because of that, Israel suffers defeat. So, I mean, this idea of, again, of individual division and individual sin bringing guilt upon the whole congregation is a very biblical concept. And Achan is stone. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, they heaped up stones over him. Yeah, it doesn't so. end, end, end too well. Typically, <laughs> that doesn't happen in the church today. <laughs> A little safer for you. And it is interesting, you know, God continually warns against division, Old and New Testament. But what happens? People don't heed his advice. You know, the next thing you know, the Babylonians come and destroy your temple. Or civil war breaks out between the tribes, you know. Also that. Yeah, or sin is introduced into the world. <laughs> so, Oh, well, you got the big one, so. <laughs> and it sounds like we're overblowing it, and we're really not. Unity is about preservation, about preservation of the truth and about preservation of what is good. And again, not unity merely for the sake of being right, but unity for the sake of souls. Unity for the sake of God's flock. We're not loving our neighbor when we pretend like what we confess isn't important. We're not loving our neighbor when we pretend as if the conduct of those who attend the service is is somehow not important. You know, when we when we start to brush everything under the rug, and that's another way of saying when we start when we continually ignore the word of God, we are not loving God to be sure, but we're certainly not loving loving our neighbor. So we've done a lot of Paul here, but we also have many other examples. You have First John, where John is admonishing them. I'm moving a little quick here because we've got a few other things to take care of. First John, what's the central tenet there? The church is comprised of sinners, but the church should also seek unity in holiness, I guess would be the way the way to put it. Right. And that in that holiness of being set apart as God's people. So it's not just a Paul thing. It's in Peter, it's in John, all over. A Jude. Jude would actually be another great one to go to go take a look at, which I believe we have an entire podcast dedicated to. Two, yeah. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, we thought we could do it in one, didn't didn't quite make it. Now we do Again, have some words about unity in the confessions. So, Zellin, where might we go then to talk a little bit about unity in the confessions of the Lutheran Church? Probably one of the most common places to go would be what we quoted earlier from the Augsburg Confession, Article 7, talking about the definition of the church. We could even talk about Article 8, which is defining what the church is, you know, that properly is a congregation of saints and true believers, but hypocrites are mingled into it. I think it's important also to talk about those things which don't necessarily cause divisions among us. Yeah. Now, and then we want to be sure, because I know you guys are going to write and tell us about this. We know that the formula of Concord and the Solid Declaration talks about unity at length, but we just don't have time to get into it today. But it does talk about fundamental enduring unity requiring a clear and binding summary of the of the doctrines that we teach drawn from God's Word. So yes. we're, we are echoing what the the uh, solid declaration says for all intents and purposes. But yeah, so yeah, on to the uh, the confession or Augsburg confession or the apology there. Sorry, Zellin. No, no, no. I, that was, that was, it's a good point. It has to be made. Yeah. The thing that we have to remember when we're talking about unity is that not everything is going to be necessarily divisive. There is diversity within unity, which was actually kind of Paul's point in Ephesians that even though there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, yet in this oneness, he still gives us the, our individual gifts, right? So this this uh, diversity within unity is a biblical concept. The way that we often talk about it within the Lutheran church, of course, is the idea of adiaphora. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, so those are, those are sort of things indifferent, and that's really in the context, you, generally, the way we use it, of worship. 
So how we conduct the divine service. An Adi offering, what would be a good example of an Adi offering? This is a really loaded question if you've been around confessional Lutherans for more than five minutes. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, and I don't want to, like, it's, it's, it's hard to define because I don't want to say indifferent things, you know, like they don't matter because right. just because they're Adi offer doesn't mean they don't matter, but... But they're not essential in the way, like, let's say the gospel is essential. The the classical definition, I suppose, would be anything that God has neither forbidden, forbidden nor commanded. Nor commanded, yeah. And as a result, much of the ceremony in which we have is maintained for the purpose of good order and also because we believe it to be beneficial. But it is ultimately an adiaphron. God does not command us to use many of the ceremonies that we use, that doesn't mean that they're contrary to what he's commanded. It just means that unity is not fractured if we're not all doing the same thing. Right. Now, we maintain the customs and practices that serve the gospel. There are examples of bad adiaphora. Right. You know, so that does adiaphora does not imply that all things are permissible or even right. good. Or okay, you know, there are still things that you just should not do in the divine service. And right. if you're honest, you can, you know, you know it when you see it. Like this, this should not be. And so we, there are just certain things that shouldn't be, shouldn't be introduced. And just because, and, and you can't claim Adiaphora as an excuse. Well, we wanted to have a Harry Potter mass or a Doctor <laughs> Seuss mass. Why? Well, Adiaphora, freedom in the gospel. That's not what that means. And the confessions are very measured about this that you identify what is adiaphora and actually you may maintain it as long as it is in some way serves the congregation. Right. Now we can go the other way because typically what we think of is like contemporary worship and really kooky, you know, pretty much anything the Episcopal church is doing. Weird practices. Yeah. You know, just exactly. weird practices. But you can also fall off the other side of the apple cart and introduce high church practices that burden people's consciences or cause them to stumble as well. Right. So yeah. it, can, it can go both ways. And, and we did get rid of certain church practices. You know, I, I don't think any Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation has baptized a bell in modern times or ever. Well, you never know. <laughs> you never know, though. Somebody's going to give me a clip from the Christian News showing me or something. <laughs> yeah, but we actually did get away from certain practices because they were abuses. Yeah, they were adiaphorans, but they weren't good for you. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and for the record, I do think it's the best practice to maintain the historic liturgy. And I think anytime you, you, you debate that, you know, the liturgy really has stood the test of time and there's a reason for that, you know? So, so to, to just reduce our traditional practices down to saying, well, it's Adiaphora, so we can take it or leave it. It really isn't that, that simple either. Yeah. The question of Adiaphora is not, I do what I want because this is a free country. Question of Adiaphora really comes down to what actually divides us. Right. Are there things that we can tolerate or, you know, even just kind of allow for the sake of the outward peace of the church without, you know, sacrificing the fundamental unity that we have in the gospel? It doesn't mean that I can just cast out everything or, you know, I can just do whatever I want. I'm not, you know, beholden to anybody yeah. because that really becomes, frankly, uh, getting back towards the fruit of the flesh. This idea that, you know, I can cause di unnecessary division in the body. 
we should be looking out for one another and, you know, being with one another, even in our outward practice and our outward ceremonies for the sake of the witness to the world. Right. Yeah. Outward unity is important, the same as inward unity. And and so it's not a bad thing to be able to say, well, for example, I'm going to be out of town over a Sunday, so I need to go to church. When a church is walking in unity, you should be able to reasonably expect a typical, or you should be able to reasonably expect a similar service from Lutheran congregation to Lutheran congregation, because our worship is an expression of our unity of doctrine. Now, does that happen? No, not necessarily. Uh, but thankfully to the internet, you know, we can kind of scope things out a little bit better. But but really, we should have that. I don't think it's really that that great if we um, are so varied in our do- in our practices that one congregation is is you know they don't resemble each other in any aspect, and you do bump into that from time to time. Yeah, and I think maybe just as one little note here too before we go to break, the, what the Adiaphora thing is reacting against is the uh, medieval Catholic notion that the church had to be absolutely unified in order to be the church. Any deviation from a set particular service was to be seen as, you know, questionable, if not, you know, bordering on heretical. And that's obviously not what we're arguing for. It doesn't, the, the unity of the church does not consist in her outward action. Her outward action comes forth from that unity which she already has in Christ. And yeah, that will mean little variations between congregations and between locations, but that still gives, we still have that one Lord, one faith, one baptism because of who we are in Jesus. And with that, we'll be right back with more Word Fitly after the break. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi talking unity, unity in the church of God. So we've gone through definitions, we've looked at scriptures, we've looked at the confessions, and now we're going to talk about some practical paths to unity, because we do believe that unity is possible. Now, perhaps not perfect, but certainly possible and something to be worked toward. I think that's a, the the not perfect is the first thing we need to emphasize with that. Perfect unity is not something that we're going to achieve in the visible church, not on this side of, of Jesus coming again. And as a result, if we're constantly striving for a sterile kind of unity, 
it's really going to be counterproductive. There has to be a great deal of love and patience in seeking unity and recognizing that men are still going to be sinners before God. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's a hopeless task, which is really your point, Willie. We don't want to think that we should never strive for it because we can't get it right. We should still strive for it because that's who we've been called to be in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like the story of A.W. Pink, who was a sort of a firebrand Calvinist preacher in the 1900s. Very famous guy in his time, but not very well known today. But that was what he always was preaching about was unity. And he really wanted everyone to be very holy and confessing the same doctrine, which are admittedly noble goals. But all these years of preaching, and he never saw it. He never, he went from town to town. He never found that perfect congregation, never found that perfect denomination. So basically, A.W. Pink spent the last years of his life holed up in a castle and not even going to church because he couldn't find the unity that he so desired. We don't want to be A.W. Pink because he'd committed it. He thought that he was doing good by separating from an imperfect, visible church, when in reality, he had committed a greater sin by separating himself from the corporate worship of God and from God's people. And we don't want to fall into that kind of despair, that there is indeed a sinful despair, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you. And that's what I mean kind of by that sterile kind of unity, that constantly seeking a perfection that just is not possible because of sin. Yeah, I mean, you could become a church of one, but I don't know if you'd probably be the only one. I think the IRS might have problems with it, but maybe you could get (laughs) tax-exempt status. I don't know. (laughs) Be your own minister. I like it. Well, everyone is a minister after all, Zelwyn, don't you? Don't you know that? (laughs) That's a whole other topic, (laughs) Willie. We don't have that much time. Um, So we want to look at that. So first and foremost, how is unity develop. No, actually, first and foremost, before we can even talk about that, we have to talk about the symptoms that we're dealing with. What is the biggest hindrance to unity in the church? Frankly, besides the fact that we are sinners, it would be that we don't know what it is that actually what God has said. Because yeah. if we if we don't know what God has said, how can we be united in what God has said? Right. We have to know what it is that is actually binding us together. And the scriptures are binding norm. And if we don't know the scriptures, we should not be surprised when there is every manner of conflict within the church. When the scripture is not treated with authority, when the plain words are contradicted or ignored, let's say at a contentious voters meeting or something like that, or board meeting, or or simply just a conversation between two Christians, we've already gone too far ashore. Well, and and just to put it a little bit differently, too, if it comes down to not knowing just straight ignorance of certain parts of the Bible from not being exposed to them, that's also a great danger. Yeah. The lectionary is a great blessing, but if we're only hearing the lectionary, we're actually missing a great deal of the Word of God. And, And you hear it more and more, you know, from Christians, well, I never heard that this was something bad, or I never knew that we believed this. Now, two things are at play. Maybe the pastor is derelict in their duty. That's always an option. And that's the easy one that you want that everybody wants to go to. Let's blame him. But also, often, the hearer just isn't listening. Sure. He or she has no desire to hear that. You know, it, it's like any media controversy, right? 
like let's let's take the the recent example of the Supreme Court hearings. No amount of investigation, testimonies, evidence, or whatever is really going to change either side's mind. Everybody's right. kind of already where they're at, and you see that with any kind of political debate, and you see it within the church too. Well, one side's come with their mind up made, you know, towards position A, the other's on the side B, and it doesn't matter what you say, nothing's going to convince them otherwise, even if the scripture speaks clearly one way or the other. Right. So we have to start by saying and by conceding as Christians that ultimately what the scripture says is what we go with. And we have to somehow cultivate, and now here we are in paths towards unity, cultivating an appreciation for the scriptures and a zeal to study the Word of God. And not only just in a public way, but also in a private way as well. Sure. The the layman who only, and that's what I was emphasizing too, the layman who or the pastor who only hears the public preaching of the Word is actually depriving themselves of a great deal of it. And as a result, they're not receiving everything that God has to say in, in His Word. And so to become familiar with the Bible means, I mean, daily usage, assiduous right. usage. You know, just to read a little bit all the time. Yeah, and you know, we want to emphasize that you should go to the Bible studies offered at your church. Sure. Okay, but I but I understand the objections. It's going to be sports, work, other obligations. People are busy today. Okay. Obviously, you need to get less busy. But two, <laughs> let's say you really don't have that much time. You've got enough time to spend a few minutes reading the Bible and praying each day. Right. Everybody has that. Every Christian has at least some, even if it's just 15 minutes, you right. have that opportunity. Right. So take that opportunity and, and make it part of your routine and discipline yourself because prayer and study and meditation is a discipline. And discipline implies that you need to practice it and that it's mm-hmm. going to take time to get into that routine. For that matter, unity is is a discipline. Absolutely. It's not, it's not something that just automatically happens. It's something that we are exercised in through the Spirit, you know, because it comes from God. But just as the Word comes to us and we are still disciplined by it, so also we are built up in the Word, or in unity, uh, through discipline as well. And then, you know, everything else is implied. Go to the divine service, listen to the sermon, listen to the readings, Listen to them. And I think this is actually kind of an important thing, too. And this is, speaking of Adiaphora, but this is just my opinion. I'm not the biggest fan of readings printed out for everyone, like in bulletins and such. <laughs> and Go my on. reason is this. One, the the Bible is meant to be heard. Now, now, that does not negate what we said about reading the Bible in your home. But it is meant to be heard. And when you're following along, unless you just can't hear or the pastor can't speak or something, you know, hear what it has to say, because when you're following along, you're going to be like, oh, pastor didn't, you know, pause at this comma or pastor didn't do this or he missed this or he flubbed this. Or, you know, you're going to say, hey, he he didn't make any mistakes today. That's good. (laughs) Take a shot. (laughs) So, but, (laughs) but listen to it the way God intended with your ears. And just take it for what it is. I, I think that's a good a good practice to have. Now, if you want to keep following along, that's fine. Go ahead. I'll, I'll counter I'll counter signal a little bit just to prove that it is an audiophron. Sure. You know, sometimes people have difficulty just listening nowadays because we're becoming a very visual kind of culture. 
And as a result, it can, I think it can be beneficial for some to focus their eyes on words as they're hearing those words in order to engage their whole attention. So I think it could be beneficial, but I think your point is still valid, Willie. We don't want it to become, oh, I'm comparing what I'm reading against what I'm hearing. It should just be another aid to our attention. Now, I will give an exception to this. Here's when it is better, if you have pew Bibles. And in that case, it's good because then you can at least, this would be good, (laughs) you can at least practice finding it. Sure. In the Bible. And I and I know guys, it sounds silly, these little bitty things, but you would be surprised, pastors, at the number of people you have who don't even realize that the Bible is divided into chapters and verses. Sure. And I bump into that all the time nowadays. And it's just it just surprises me. You know, another thing, now that we're on the, the subject of just following along, turn your cell phones off. Right. Yeah. Or more, or more generally, just remove all distractions. Remove all distractions. Noisy kids may stay. It's good for them. Don't be embarrassed when a kid throws a fit or anything like that. Do be embarrassed when your phone rings or we hear you playing Angry Birds. <laughs> I haven't encountered that one, but that would be that would be bad. Yes. <laughs> so so that's so that's what we're saying. Ground everything in the word. Now I would also add that especially for Lutherans then, that a study of history is important too, because you want to know what makes a Lutheran church. So I think supplemental reading is beneficial too. Feel free to counter signal on that one. No, no, I, I think you, I mean, your point is, is, is well taken. We just don't want the supplemental to become the primary. No, we're going to get into that in just a couple of minutes here. So yeah, so, you know, it's just, it's just, what we're saying is be intentional and cultivate and and it's not just about reading, but it's about taking to heart what you read so that when we do see dissensions starting to crop up within the church, let's say gossip, for example, we know what the scriptures say against gossip. So we don't feed into that gossip or somebody's angry over here. We don't kind of feed that rage or get angry with them or that sort of thing. We're talking about reading the scripture so that you know how to live as a Christian in well, community. I mean, It really comes down to a point I think you made in an earlier podcast, Willie. You don't read the scriptures only when there's a problem. Because if you're you're turning to the scriptures only when there's a problem, only when there's division, then you're not really going to know what it is that God has to say. And the scriptures are going to be closed to you because of your your lack of familiarity with them. But when we are in the scriptures continuously and we are reading them and we are paying attention to them and taking them to heart, even memorizing them, I mean, I think that's an extremely beneficial practice too, then we are able to approach these problems, approach these works of the flesh, and to actually speak a godly word to them. So that's a little bit about how just the bare bones of how to start progressing towards unity. Let's say that unity is in some measure achieved, or at least tranquility is somehow achieved within the congregation, how should we go about maintaining that unity? Well, the Bible. (laughs) Exactly. See, see, answer one. Yeah, so we continually ground ourselves in the scriptures. And that's where we get to this discussion of supplemental materials or secondary materials. Right, right. We don't want to have too much of a focus on them, because then that can obscure what we're trying to do. So, Zelma, what would be an example? Oh, I mean, let's just let's just use the confessions as an example, because that's the one that we as Lutherans are probably the most familiar with. The confessions have a good purpose, and that is to guide our thinking and to show us that 
the faith is not something that just cropped up, you know, however many years ago you were born, you know, when the world began. <laughs> but in reality, this is a faith that has been handed down from generation to generation and that many of our problems are not new. And so these the secondary material, like the confessions, helps us to guide us in our thinking and to interpret the scriptures in a way that is consistent with that history. It's when it becomes so focused on those secondary materials that we're reading them to the exclusion of scripture that we actually end up causing division again. Yeah, and it's true. And, you know, of course, pastors, you need to be studying the secondary materials, too. And we're not saying that you shouldn't and laity shouldn't either. It's just simply where's our where does our emphasis lie? Now you can actually take, you know, a say a study of the confessions and make a very good Bible study out of it, as long as you remember to use the Bible. You know, you find a lot of this too in some of the canned studies. You know, you don't always need a prepared studies study pastor. You did you were educated, you know, <laughs> in the Bible. So you don't feel like you have to shell out shekels or or ask someone for a prepared study every time. You don't necessarily need that. But it does become a problem because you do find this in a lot of churches today, especially where they have a Bible study, but it's it's something else entirely. It's like financial planning right. or, or something like that. You know, it's it is it's it's more of shekels than of than of words, the words of God. Yeah, okay, so you might trot out some Bible verses there, but I, I don't know if that's always necessarily the good thing, a good thing. And if you're gonna do those things don't let that be exclusively what you do forever. Right. You know, I think it's permissible to take a step away, you know, maybe study the Augsburg Confession or the history around it. You know, we do want to study church history. That's very important, but that can't be the only emphasis. You know, you don't want your Bible study to be like all Luther quotes and some Dave Ramsey in there. <laughs> You know, and you certainly don't want to be like some Max Lucado <laughs> book or something like that. You know, use them as, for what they're tended to be supplemental, right, to, to the main thing. And your pastors know this, and you know, understand that, and they know that when you come to the Bible study, what you need is to be fed with the Word of God. That's what right. you need to receive, and that's what we want to prepare you with. We say this like every other podcast, but don't forget the great benefit of the Reformation, and that is the scripture in the vernacular. I think you say that every other podcast, well, but that's true. <laughs> now, you can argue, and you would have a point in saying that, yes, but everybody having a Bible has also led to all of this disunity that you talk about. And there is some truth to that. Only though if you decide to say that I'm going to divorce myself from the historic confession of the church. So now right. we kind of come back full circle here and we come back to the questions of Adiaphor and the questions of written confessions like the book of Concord. They actually do serve the unity of the church by saying, no, we're actually not free to just pick up a Bible in the vernacular and go do our own thing. That here we have these confessions that we are bound to and as pastors, which which show us the way in which we ought to go and how Scripture has been and should be interpreted. The same way with worship, we don't want to completely jettison everything because we don't want to be, you know, dissenters just for the sake of dissenting or right. for the sake of being novel. So, so everything actually does function as the Word intends it, you know, or as the Word teaches us to unify the church. If you don't have a shared confession, 
unity probably won't be achieved. And, and quite frankly, if you've jettisoned every historic practice of your church body, that is not an expression of, of Christian unity in, in any sense of the word. I think it's worth saying that the these secondary things like the confessions and all of these things serve the unity of the church because they show us that the unity is not just now. And I think that's uh, some of the danger that we run into in the church today, that we believe that we want to solve all of our issues right now by divorcing ourselves and creating division with where we have come from. Yeah, it's like, I saw a division in the past, so I rejected the past, is basically. Yeah, yeah, the past is evil or something, or it's, you know, this is where all our troubles come from, so I'm going to cut myself off from it, and we're going to achieve unity right now. And it, and it's usually like they'll say, well, we had unity until about AD 34 or AD 33 in a month. And then more. not even during the lives of the apostles, Willie. <laughs> right. Well, you know, hey, restoration is going to restore, I guess. <laughs> and so, yeah, so you basically know with that and it's and yeah, and it's almost it's a it's a little bit idolatrous to be like, hey, I've figured it out. I know how I'm going to do better than everybody who came before me. Right. And it's funny yeah. how you would look at like your fathers in the faith and say, yeah, I, you know, they were good men, but, you know, they just don't speak to us today. And so you go find whatever cool kid, you know, who wrote a youth ministry handbook and then you go follow that guy, you know, as, as if he knows better than the saints and martyrs who came before us. So Right. Right. But yeah, so so all of these things we, we we maintain for the sake of unity, and they do supplement, you know. But they're always working towards that one thing, unity, and that one true church, which is found where the gospel is preached and the sacraments rightly administered. So everything is working to serve that ultimate goal in that context. That's the unity of the church. Zellin, any final any final words? No, I think I think we kind of hit on everything. Just a reemphasis that again, unity doesn't consist in the externals and all of the secondary things, as important as they are, but it consists in the the gospel, in Jesus Christ, and the word that we have received from God. You know, we don't we don't live on bread, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All right, this has been a word fitly spoken. If you like what you heard or have any questions or comments, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org facebook.com slash wordfitly or twitter at wordfitly or come to our discussion group on facebook wordfitlyposting with a p i'm willie grills here with zell and heidi god love you and god bless